Blog Talk Radio. Presentments. This is a private expression of personal perspective and is neither public disclosure nor public offering. The material set forth herewith is for educational purposes only. Nothing stated herein is intended as constituting legal advice and is not provided with any warranties, expressed or implied. The content set forth herein constitute the opinions and understanding of the author. Accountability for the actions of anyone who utilizes any material set forth herein as part or in whole resides entirely with the user and are neither the actions nor responsibility of the author. Acknowledgement. This work is the product of the dedication, intelligence, and above all courage slash risk of many people. Some are paid or pain and are threatened with pain with their property, freedom, and their very lives. It now appears that the number of such casualties in the cause of truth, freedom, justice, and peace are rapidly increasing. This work is dedicated to all those who share these values in whatever way they perceive and think of them. Note, this article, such as every treatise of this type, must be regarded as a work in progress that is subject to change without notice at any instant based upon the acquisition of new knowledge, information, insights, and experience. Dealing with Presentments, Part 1, Background, Context, and Underpinnings. Whenever you receive a presentment of any kind, from a traffic ticket to a bill to a summons or indictment, there are two basic and diametrically opposite ways to think about the matter. In other words, you can think of receiving a presentment as an event that, one, will cost you, be a loss to you, or two, is a gift that can enrich you. Everything in life is a matter of perception. Our challenges are usually the result of ignoring what we are confronted with rather than endeavoring to discern how best to act with more adequate knowledge and understanding. We assume rather than know. Consequently, if we would have any chance of succeeding vice vice presentment, we must first have some basic understanding of the system within which the issuance, interpretation, and enforcement of presentments occur. The following mini-analysis of the legal system may be helpful in this regard. In the I Ching is a remarkable statement. The superior man goes only into his own domain. As Frederick Bastiat said in a similar vein, minding one's own business is the only moral law. The conundrum, of course, is how to live in peace and freedom in a world in which we are besieged by excises of the interminable, relentless, long-standing, and incredibly brilliant schemes of rulership, slavery, and exploitation that have plagued mankind throughout history and that aggressively intrude themselves unilaterally into all areas of our lives, spiritual, emotional, mental, social, and economic. This renders living in a live-and-let-live manner on this planet difficult and impossible without sufficient knowledge. The fact that law consists of rules revolving around the use of deadly force is a powerful incentive to become as clear as possible concerning the nature of the legal-slash-commercial system governing the world. We must remember that to assume makes an ass out of you and me. In the case of law, acting on false knowledge, in other words, in ignorance, can be fatal. This is enormously complicated by the fact that the legal system is colorable, in other words, phony. It may appear real, but nothing is as it appears. Just as in Alice in Wonderland, to assume that the appearance is genuine and dependable is to act on illusion instead of truth. One cannot have peace with those who hold aggression in their hearts and are not interested in love, freedom, harmony, truth, 
or any of the other higher values of man that most people revere and would cherish seeing established in the community of man. The state of the heart is what counts in this equation. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Good people are disarmed and advanced by an inability to comprehend the mentality of deliberate predators, usually regarding problems and dealing with such aggressors as misunderstandings that can be cleared up through sufficient communication. It is often not easy for good people to understand that there are those who know the difference between good and evil and deliberately choose the latter. The significance of this in law is profound. If your adversary is sincere, truthful, fair, and honorable about what he is doing, in other words, interested in uncovering and dealing justly with the truth, then you are probably operating on parallel tracks. In such case, the discord or conflict is the result of misunderstanding or lack of communication and disappears when both sides realize what is happening. If, however, your adversary is operating from a covert stance with deliberate deceit, concealment, misrepresentation, bad faith, and aggression in his heart, the dispute is real, but not be resolved amicably and requires exposure of the facts to the light of day by providing sufficient evidence. Further significance of the importance of subjective condition and intent of the heart is that all law is contract, and the essence and core of any contract is agreement. Without a genuine agreement, consisting of a true meeting of the minds and mutual understanding by all parties of all terms and conditions to which the parties are agreeing, there is no contract. Derivatives and the nature of the legal system. The powers that be turn everything into a tool and a weapon to be used in their unceasing attempt to triumph by playing win-lose games against their fellow man. One of the most powerful, magical, and difficult to detect tools and weapons used against mankind by aggressors and exploiters is language. Allegedly, the word phonetics derives from phonetics, purportedly stemming from the Phoenicians who gave us languag, a word referencing a substance that, when fired from the cannon of a ship, tore the sails and mast and left the opponent dead in the water. Obviously, words are extremely powerful weapons, and using them for conquest and rulership purposes is what the legal system is all about. Ideas concerning the nature and use of language and law are set forth inter alia in a discourse entitled Legal Fictions by Lon L. Fuller, 1967, Stanford University Press, Stanford, California. The Fiction as a Linguistic Phenomenon, pages 9 through 10. Eyring once said that the history of the law could write as a motto over his first chapter the sentence, In the beginning was the word. Students of the legal fiction might also take this motto to heart, for certainly it is a truth commonly overlooked that the fiction is a disease or affection of language. Eyring expresses in this fashion the exaggerated respect shown by early law for the written and spoken word. Among all primitive peoples, the word appears as something mysterious. A naive faith ascribes to the word a supernatural power. Anyone who has thought about the legal fiction must be aware that it presents an illustration of the all-pervading power of the word, that a statement which is disbelieved by both its author and his audience can have any significance at all is evidence enough that we are here in contact with the mysterious influence exercised by names and symbols. In that sense, the fiction is a linguistic phenomenon. What is a legal fiction? Pages 4 through 5. 
The influence of the fiction extends to every department of the jurist activities, yet it cannot be said that this circumstance has ever caused the legal profession much embarrassment. Laymen frequently complain of the law. They very seldom complain that it was founded upon fictions. They are more apt to express discontent when the law has refused to adopt what they regard as an expedient and desirable fiction. Perhaps, too, the fiction has played its part in making the law uncognizable to the layman. The very strangeness and boldness of the legal fiction has tended to stifle his criticisms and has no doubt often led him to agree modestly with the writer of Shepherd's Touchstone that the subject matter of law is somewhat transcendent and too high for ordinary capacities. At another place, the only defense he can find is the doubtful one of recrimination when he points out that the common law fictions were no worse than the numerous fictions of the Roman law. A fiction distinguished from a lie, page 7. Maine's classical definition of the historical fiction has any assumption which conceals or affects to conceal the fact that a rule of law has undergone alteration, remains unchanged, its operation being modified, seems to leave room for the intent to deceive. The English courts were in the habit of pretending that a shadow, which might in fact have been taken from the plaintiff by force, had been found by the defendant. Why? In order to allow an action which would otherwise would not have lain. If the fiction does not deceive, of what purpose is it? It is easy to conclude uncharitably that the judge who enlarges his jurisdiction or who changes a rule of law under cover of a fiction is very coolly and calculatingly choosing to hide from the public the fact that he is legislating. A fiction distinguished from an erroneous conclusion, page 8. A fiction is generally distinguished from an erroneous conclusion or, in scientific fields, from a false hypothesis by the fact that it is adopted by its author with knowledge of its falsity. A fiction is an expedient but consciously false assumption. As living, physical, biological, sentient beings, we are real. We exist as aspects of existence. The system, on the other hand, is an abstract creation of the mind. It is in the realm of words, symbols, ideas, laws, contracts, etc., where the circuit exists through which the current, currency, flows in accordance with the rules of law and commerce. Manifest existence emerges into form and substance out of the nothingness of the unmanifest. All creation, therefore, is derivative. The created is derived from the creator. Creator and created are different meta-levels, or logical types, from each other. The eternal absolute has no finite properties. From any relative perspective, the absolute is neither cognizable nor perceivable and must be described in accordance with what it is not, such as the void, unbounded, changeless, etc. While the manifest is changeless, Manifest existence is endless, non-repeating, unique, and non-repeatable change. It is not possible that any configuration of anything in creation is ever exactly the same as it ever was or ever will be or will be a split fraction of a second later or ever could be. As Heracletes noted, no man can walk twice into the same river. Everything is process and pattern, energy and motion in particular forms, orbits, paths, and circuities that are at every infinitesimal instant unique. Furthermore, the further removed manifest creation is from the source, the more derivative and infinite it is. 
that which the mind through sensory experience and all other relative processes regards as physical reality that is solid, real, and substantive is in actuality the most illusory. The more subtle, insubstantial, and elusive the level of manifestation one accesses, the more real and potent it is, since it is less derivative and closer to the source. This can be illustrated by observing the history of science, perhaps most dramatically exemplified by the development of weapons. As man has gone from weaponry involving the gross physical, clubs, spears, catapults, etc., to more subtle strata, such as the chemical level where gunpowder operates, towards the atomic and subatomic domains, atomic bomb and hydrogen bomb, toward the unmanifest field, the more energy is liberated. Although neither the absolute nor the relative is actually cognizable by the mind, that does not stop just about everyone from engaging in the popular game of thinking otherwise. The mind forms concepts about the source, God, none of which is either remotely a fateful map nor the territory that it purportedly mapping, as well as aspects of the relative. To satisfy the mind's need to know, man lives by the foolish idea that his conceptions of existence whether the absolute or relative, are true, and that the fixed pictures, patterns, or conclusions derived from some finite vantage point, largely through acquired experience and sensory perceptions, have captured the thing itself. This is as silly as taking progressive snapshots of the ocean and its waves and thereby thinking that one has cognized and captured the ocean, or speculating from outside the door what is inside a room in which one is not present and living on the basis of one's speculations as if they were absolute. This state of man's development we call an ego-conscious state as opposed to unconscious in which we live life simply lived or self-conscious, in which man lives in conscious awareness of the absolute and relative as they actually are rather than as his mind thinks about or cognizes them. The ego-conscious state, or mistaking abstract constructions of the mind for reality and thereafter building careers, institutions, security, and governments, thereon is idolatry. It is idol worship, in other words, bow worship. By giving credence and superiority to concepts about something, such as God, rather than the reality of the thing itself, one worships, pays homage to, reveres and depends upon graven images. Graven images of the mind are as much idols as, and indeed necessarily precede the construction of, any idols of wood or stone. Man's penchant to think that he has cognized the uncognizable and, worse yet, mistake his own cognitions for that which he thinks he has cognized but has not, is not only idolatry, but may be responsible for more discord, carnage, suffering, and wars than any other single aspect of human life. It might well be said that God, eternal source, created man in his own image as a conscious spiritual being with power to create, and man returned the compliment. As Pascal quipped, to die for an ideal is a pretty high price to place on conjecture. The goal of any Zen master, for instance, is to bring people to a conscious state where they no longer, in the words of Gregory Bateson, eat the menu and leave the dinner. Until one sees and lives reality as it actually is, he is making what he regards as reality, in other words, what his mind, through the senses, perceives and thinks about existence, for reality itself. He mistakes the map for the territory. Since the senses are enormously limited, conclusions about reality reached by the mind are fantasy. 
The senses are liars and deceivers. We would perceive reality in a vastly different manner, for instance, if we could view existence through the entire electromagnetic spectrum instead of the extremely narrow range in which what we see as colors exist. The practical consequence of all this is that in man's ego-conscious state, he lives a fraudulent and fictitious life. It is one of illusions and delusions by living in accordance with the preposterous belief that his conceptualizations are both accurate and real when they are neither. Man not only lives but relates with others, often dogmatically and violently, on the basis of believing that the imposter is genuine. And as much as law itself is a subset of the workings of man's mind, what else can law be other than that of which is an expression, in other words, fictions and frauds? Moreover, since all this occurs within as a derivative expression of the ever-changing relative, law cannot be other than ever-changing. A summary of the points and consequences of the above include the following. Number one, language has power and magic because of man's ego-conscious state. Number two, the powers that be deliberately utilize language in man's ego-conscious condition for administering power and exploitation. The entire legal system is a word game played by the designers and operators of the system for the purposes of power, plunder, exploitation, and enslavement with unending exercises of destructive physical force applied against living beings on the basis of meanings artificially imparted to the words used. Number three, mistaking the different metal levels of existence itself, in other words, mistaking the map for the territory, is not only delusion, but when it comes to law, it is a disaster. Authority for using deadly legalized violence against one's person is attached to the results of the error. Number four, our difficulties often arise from our acting in a manner that results in people enforcing the fictions and frauds by systematic and ruthless application of legalized violence, damaging the real us. Then, whatever is happening in the system becomes substantive in our physical lives. Number five, everything in existence can be viewed, perceived, and thought about in an infinite number of ways, by an infinite number of beings, for an infinite number of possible reasons. Not only are no two of any of those things the same, but cannot be identical even if anyone so wished. Concepts, maps, can be fixed. Creation, the territory, cannot. Number six, it is impossible in the ever-changing realm of creation for any subset thereof, such as a man, even remotely to fathom, comprehend, and know, let alone verbalize, the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We might define truth with a capital T, as the actual way things are, in other words, the thing in itself, to use Kant's term, or in their suchness, to use a Buddhist characterization. This totality and actuality is not finitely knowable, but because of its unimaginable vastness, and because no two split instants are ever the same, the same word designated as truth, lowercase t, might be defined as an accurate abstract mapping of some thing or event, such as if one is given a map that allegedly shows where a treasure is buried and digs at that spot indicated. He will either find or not find the treasure. If it is found, we say the map is accurate and the author thereof told the truth. If the treasure is not found, we say that the map was false or inaccurate and the author was either in error or lied or someone removed the treasure subsequent to the making of the map. 
7. Man's capacity for mapping reality through creation of abstract symbols, such as numbers and words, is likewise derivative. Anyone can observe or think about anything and create slash concoct whatever designation of letters, symbols, and sounds he may wish for classifying, categorizing, or identifying the particular thing and referencing it in his own mind and or communicating it to others by speech, writing, or some other means. Number eight, the legal system, like reality, likewise consists of the flow of energy in accordance with the patterns of its design. In the case of the legal system, both the design of the circuitries and the current that flows therein are different than that of given existence. With respect to the universe, the designer is the creator, however anyone may think of the infallible source of all that exists, and the current that flows is universal energy that is ultimately unknowable and undefinable by any relative means. Concerning the legal system, the designer is man, and the current that flows in the circuits of the system is called currency, in other words, money. There are very few types of legal entities existing today. They are fundamentally corporations, trusts, partnerships, and sole proprietorships. The IRS code at 26 U.S.C. 7701.01a lists seven classes of legal persons, the additional three to the four fundamental ones being an association, estate, and company. What defines each of these and distinguishes each from the other, as well as determines how the system deals with them, is the schematic defining how the currency flows in the circuitry. Money embodies more laws and commercial principles than any other single thing, whereby insofar as the world is concerned, it may reasonably be characterized as the measure of all things. Number nine, legal terms and phrases are artificially imbued with the particular meaning and significance of those who define them. Legal terms have considerably different meanings than the same words do in ordinary parlance. The system, in short, is a word game. Words in law are artificially assigned meanings that are completely different than the meanings attributed to the same words in normal speech. Examples of this are legion, one of the most prominent of which is the word person, which in law refers to a legal fiction and does not and cannot pertain to a real being. This is why we need law dictionaries in addition to regular ones. The result is the legal system is its own language concerning which we allegedly need translators and mouthpieces called attorneys for using the esoteric language that is not spoken by laymen when in a forum, such as a court, wherein legal language is spoken. Number 10. When language, symbols, and ideas are usurped by those who would play win-lose games, they are wielded as weapons. This phenomenon has grown to such gargantuan proportions that it is a scourge on mankind and a blight on the planet that is destroying civilization and wrecking havoc on the earth. Some of the reasons things have gotten so far out of hand is that the capacity to create and use new derivatives is unending. There are derivatives of derivatives of derivatives, all freely utilized for exploitation, legal plunder, and power. Use of creating endless new derivatives at will is ever-increasing. The situation is akin to an internet site within which clicking to delete a current window causes several new pop-ups to occur until one's open file is overburdened with open windows. Number 11. A few concrete examples of derivatives with respect to the legal system are as follows. A. The system invents and uses contrived, derived names, 
such as a host of variations of one's all-caps name, all of which are legal fictions, and each of which is a different entity, instead of one's full appellation consisting of all lowercase or upper and lowercase letters, symbolizing the real being. Therefore, whenever one receives a presentment, such as a summons or complaint, the document is not addressed and does not pertain to you, but to a legal entity, ends legis, that is some bastardization of your name in all capital letters. In this manner, the system is freed from the requirement to deal with actual facts and real beings and can operate on presumptions, unsupported allegations, non-existent debts, stipulations and contractual interactions between legal fictions, and endless concoctions of the mind. B. New case numbers are often created from the same case, such as by changing numbers or letters in the case thereby enabling matters that you might submit in the original case, as well as any prior derivatives thereof, from needing to be addressed, since they do not pertain to what you thought they did. It is also likely that the system uses each newly derived case to make yet more money. C. Laws and administrative agencies multiply endlessly, with each new derivative used to make more money for those in the system while increasing the scope and severity of their power and increasingly difficult to comprehend or counter. Number 12. In the 2002 Berkshire Hathaway, the company of Warren E. Buffett, annual report on pages 13 through 15 appear the following words. We view them, derivatives, as time bombs, both for the parties that deal in them and the economic system. In our view, derivatives are financial weapons of mass destruction, carrying dangers that, while now latent, are potentially lethal. If those in the system can create endless new derivatives out of almost anything at any time, and use them for exploitation, enslavement, and money-making at the expense of those who are victimized by the monopolistic use of power under color of law, Warren Buffett's statement is self-evident. Further, those who act in this way may be regarded as terrorists using weapons of mass destruction. They're raping and pillaging with ever-increasing profligacy and blatancy. In addition to inventing, using, profiting from, and destroying lives wholesale by the unchecked use of derivatives, the system's rules without revealing the rules of the game. By means of undisclosed presumptions, the elite have structured a scheme that is full of catch-22 so that if we do not act, we lose, and if we do act, we lose. It is in the presumptions, not the law and the facts, where the power lies. The designers and owners of the system concocted it for the purpose of bettering themselves vice vice others. The result is a monstrous beast of cosmic proportions, a ravenous and insatiable Moloch that is an expression of a single and simple ethical choice, which is whether one chooses to play win-win games or win-lose games when interacting with others. The features of these two kinds of games are summarized as follows. Number one. A win-win interaction is an expression of peace, dignity, love, unity, harmony, mutual good faith, absence of malice, deceit, and presence of all of the other elements of contract law required to formulate a genuine contract. Free consent of all parties is essential. Number two, a win-lose interaction is an expression of separation, conflict, and disharmony, and never results in the contract the winner claims exists. In actuality, a win-lose interaction is non-existent since even the winner loses. Such an apparent victor 
causes harm to others, creation, and himself. He may think he wins, but in accordance with the inexorable laws of existence, he reaps what he sows, incurs the corresponding karma, action slash reaction or cause and effect act, and their exact consequences by harmful acts. The golden rule is essential terms might be expressed. One who harms others harms himself, or that which one does unto others else shall be done unto him. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. A win-lose interaction in terms of nature is called the food chain, law of the jungle, dog-eat-dog. This characterizes law and governments today, and which is called the law of necessity. The law of necessity is actually no law. Law is superseded to deal with the emergency which the government itself causes to use as an excuse to abolish rights and increase its own discretionary power. Witness the host of laws being passed these days, such as the Patriot Acts. In win-lose games, there is no morality, nor ethics, and only one rule. Just eat, baby. Anything goes since the end, increased power and commercial enrichment of the perpetrators, justifies the means. As a result, no win-lose interaction results in a valid contract enforceable at law. The involvement does not contain even one of the essential ingredients, all of which must exist in the interaction, a contract to form a genuine contract. It is because the inner intent of the heart of those who have designed and masterminded this system over the ages is malevolent in some manner that the resulting Moloch is loose to run amok on the planet, devouring living beings, the rights, freedoms, and ability to live in peace and harmony between people, and that the earth's resources and ecological integrity. Indeed, the same gang has, throughout the ages, built up and destroyed at least seven civilizations of Zions, and is now in the midst of destroying the eighth, in other words, our civilization today. This is transpiring in the United States, for instance, at an accelerated rate. Among many other aspects of this are that through the use of zip codes, the world's nations with postal codes are divided up into quarter-acre lots, inventory for liquidation. The world belongs to the ruthless, in other words, those who deliberately play win-lose power exploitation games through their interminable uses of legalized violence. The cardinal nature of the system today is that everything skates unless you bust it. In other words, the undisclosed presumptions on the basis of which power is exercised are free to operate against you unchecked unless you neutralize them. As the maxim of law says, when the law presumes the affirmative, existence and supremacy of the undisclosed presumptions, the negative, absence of any operational undisclosed presumptions, is to be proved. Some examples of undisclosed presumptions of the system are, number one, foundational presumption. Everyone is a free will sovereign being responsible for his or her own acts, thereby enabling law to exist at all. Without this presumption, no one could be held accountable for anything and no basis would exist for any rules or restitute. Number two, the system always wins and the people always lose. Number three, the system can change the law invent new laws, and alter interpretations of law at words at will, since it is all presumed to be their property. Number four, those in the system are not under any compulsion to reveal the presumptions on the basis of which they function. It is impossible to play a game when one does not know the rules. If playing a game with those who do not know the rules thoroughly, but have carte blanche to change them at will when one does not know what is going on, 
The result is a slaughter. It belies the quotation found in a law review. We are tyrants and cruel ones. Whatever we may have felt, we have never heard of a tyrant in such sort cruel as to punish men for disobedience to laws or order which he had kept from the knowledge. Harvard Law Review, Volume 48, 1934-1935, page 198. Synopsis of the Problem Our challenges when dealing with the system include the following. Number one, the law is unlimited and no one can know it all. Number two, law is always changing so that at any point something that previously was legal, recognized, and upheld might no longer be so. Number three, the system does not belong to us and changes perpetually without notice by those who own it. Number four, there are an infinite number of ways to interpret any event and essentially any law as those with experience in court can attest. Number five, it is impossible to be assured that we know all the undisclosed presumptions on the basis of which law functions. And number six, the powers that be study and exploit every aspect of man's nature, good and bad, with malevolent intent. Perhaps what they do and the way they subjectively feel about what they are doing is regarded by them as legitimate or even worthy or even more divinely mandated. In any case, when governed by this win-lose mentality, the world becomes a nightmare. The dominating climate is not one of live and let live, peaceful and honorable intent, and harmony between people, but a perpetual war zone involving the need to live under a legalized violent system that acts in accordance with the mentality that the end, their self-aggrandizement and power, justifies the means. Nothing is not permitted. Attitudes and Actions Now that we have some idea of the challenge we face just by living in the world today, we can use the understanding to help formulate solutions. Ideally, success involves four elements which are in largely chronological sequence. Number one, knowing and living who you are, your true self, convictions, and creed. Number two, articulating properly in documents that define who and what you are with a witness, in other words, notary. Number three, noticing and securing confirmation from those you would like to acknowledge your true self and standing. Number four, defending your position in adversarial encounters with the system, both in the field and in court. The following are some practical ideas concerning actualizing effective strategy. Number one, the most important thing is knowledge and understanding of what is happening. Therefore, the first priority is get educated. There is no substitute for this, especially in the climate in which we now live. In the celebrated words of Thomas Jefferson, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never can be. First and foremost, getting educated requires knowing yourself, who and what you are, and becoming clear, confident, and establishing in yourself your real being. Number two. The nature of the times is escalating the timeless imperative to make one's spiritual life paramount. Increasingly, the state of the world is communicating the message that the only way out is in. 
living in accordance with the understanding that cultivating and realizing our inner being, in other words, spiritual awakening and realization, is more important, enduring, and conducive to providing us with the happiness, peace, and fulfillment that alone will satisfy the heart and soul than anything we can see, do, experience, or have in the outside world. We all have two wars to win and opponents with which to deal. Number one, ourselves. In other words, obtaining self-mastery. And number two, a hostile, deceitful, and treacherous world. If we do not win the internal battle and become clear about what we are and how or why we want to live, relate to others, and deal with the system, we have no hope of winning in encounters with the ruthless aggression to which we are relentlessly subjected. Number three, in the absence of self-realization, we live at the expense of life. We expend time, effort, and energy attempting to acquire things in the outside world, the essence and origin of which we do not possess in our own being and consciousness. In such cases, we lose the roots and cling to the treetops, where our platform of operation is ungrounded and ephemeral. Number four, live to be free of blame, where blame is defined as blocking someone's way without just ethical cause. As it is said, for blocking no one's way, no one blames him. If you do not interfere in people's lives, you will not incur the repercussions for doing so, thereby immunizing yourself from having to deal with the entangling and undesirable consequences of your actions. Number five, stay in your own domain. If you do not traverse into your adversary's turf, you do not create a nexus between you and them that allows the system to engulf you. Accomplishing this includes becoming clear about the nature of private and public and when or how you are acting in which domain. If you leave your ground of substance, reality, and sovereignty and go into their domain of illusion, treachery, and deceit, your situation is hopeless. By so doing, you abandon a position where you have clout and they have none in favor of going into a realm where they have all the power and you have none. The public side is their game and property, not yours. So you have no standing rights and power there. Your body is real and came first into the world before any fictitious version of your given private name or any birth certificate or other document could be derived by the system to use for its betterment and your detriment. Number six, be careful never to reach a point where you think you know enough or you have it all figured out. As soon as you think you have it, you've had it. Number seven, understand as much of the law and practice thereof as possible in terms of universal principles that transcend and are more fundamental than the system's concoctions. Man's law is a subset of and derives from principles that are more fundamental than and endure beyond all human imaginings. The further removed from universal principles we are, the more unstable and unreliable is our position. The observation of Emerson is apt. As to methods, there may be a million and then some, but the principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. The man who tries methods, ignoring principles, is sure to have trouble. Number eight, change your thinking. If the thinking and perceiving ruts have you confined, then alter, revise, and expand them. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. If you're not catching any fish on the side where you have heretofore been fishing. Number nine, never assume. Don't take anything they say or do at face value. Dig for the facts and substantiation in law for what you do. 
In the words of Gilbert and Sullivan, things aren't always what they seem. Skim milk masquerades as cream. Number 10, create a paper trail in public record concerning as many aspects of your position as possible. This includes executing documents that articulate and declare your rights, identity, and standing, thereby shifting the burden of proof onto those who would deprive you of them. Establish and notice the proper parties of your position, sending colored copies of your documents, preferably dispatched by a notary with a notarial certificate of service. Number 11, whenever you are out and about, carry correctly colored pens with you, as well as postage stamps, rubber stamps, texts of various things to say in emergency contexts, and notarize colored copies of crucial rights asserting documents. Be prepared. Number 12, collect dictionaries, perhaps all you can, both regular and law. Words are the weapons of this game. By understanding the meaning and legal significance of words, you not only have revealed to you what your strategy and tactics can be to win when you're writing your documents, all legal documents are paper soldiers for fighting win-lose battles in a legal setting, but communicate in their language. The official dictionary in the U.S. is Bouvier. They won't tell you this because of so many options available to you revealed in that law dictionary. Also, get the Oxford Unabridged Dictionary, available in diamond print with magnifying glass for the extensive etymology of words. Number 13, understand as much about the nature of the system as possible so you can use it to your advantage. This should include spending time in court observing diverse proceedings, paying attention to the interaction between attorneys and judges so you can perceive more clearly how the system functions to baffle the people. Number 14, capitalize on the mentality of bureaucrats and what they understand, feel comfortable with, and offer you in the way of procedural options. If you relate to them in this manner, you do not act outside the bounds of their job description and do not put them in the wrong. At the same time, you secure their cooperation and let them do what they are familiar with, such as sending you documents or clarification to which you are statutorily entitled, which they often tell you in their correspondence, such as under this or that act you are entitled to such and so. Don't confront them with anything hostile or outside their niche and mentality, and certainly do not require them to think. Number 15. Since to bureaucrats reality of what exists is on their computers, don't fill out any more forms than you have to, and don't answer and return questionnaires. Your questions get cross-referenced in innumerable computers, can be used to assemble a profile on you and everything about you, and are often sold to marketing agencies so that you are flooded with unwanted offers and fed into the system's database as more food for the beast to consume and use against you. What is advisable to do is live your life as privately and off the radar as possible and put out information you want bureaucrats to believe and hence act on as the truth about you and your activities, including information on your computer that leads them on rabbit trails away from you and your freedom. Number 16, play different agencies and aspects of the system against each other. The system is not homogeneous. Most agencies and departments are very territorial, desiring to have as much exclusivity of power as possible to themselves without having to share power with other aspects of the system so as to compromise their ability to function as autonomous as possible. Number 17, accept and return for value all presentments. When you can, use autographed postage stamps on your documents and have them sent to the destination by your notary. Number 18, every time you ever mail anything, including having a notary mail things on your behalf, 
Put postage stamps on the envelope. Do not mail by use of the red meter postage. Whenever you take an item into a post office that needs postage and ask the teller to put the postage on, they run it through their meter stamp. Do not allow this. You need the council stamp for the clout it has. As a binding obligation of the U.S. government and not the red ink meter, the use of which means the item is not canceled and mail fraud is involved. Number 19, in addition to the use of a notary, such thing as embassy seals can work wonders. Perception is reality. Many bureaucrats and officials, upon seeing embassy seals, apostilles, etc., back off immediately, possibly because they think that they might be tampering with matters beyond their knowledge and jurisdiction and thereby risking some kind of problem for themselves. Number 20, place all documents you execute as well as all paperwork from adverse parties in the system that you receive and accept in return for value and or file in court directly under the Universal Postal Union, in other words, the UPU, for the proper use of postage stamps. This matter is discussed below under postal power. Number 21, whenever you have a serious subpoena to serve, such as on the mayor of a municipality or some high government official, have them served by the sheriff or, better yet, the provost marshal. Call the U.S. Marshal's office and see what is involved in having this done. Number 22. If you're in prison, either ask or have someone on the outside ask on your behalf for the prison form for reporting irregularities. A prison is a federal project. Inmates can report irregularities and call in county, state, and federal auditors. This form is used for reporting irregularities and accounting of federal projects to the Army Corps of Engineers under the Military Accounting Manual, ER 37210. Almost all prisons keep false books. When they are audited upon the first irregularity, which usually does not take long for auditors to find, things hit the fan. One might ask the prison administrator for the form or the prison case officer. Number 23. Ask for your SID number or state identification number and file from every state in which you have ever been in for any period of time. While the Social Security number is federal, the state identification number or SID number is state. Through this tracking number, the states keep track of everything about you. In other words, your straw man, such as licenses, liens, arrests, etc. SID numbers are either seven digits followed by a letter suffix or eight digits without the letter. All, however, are preceded by the two-character U.S. Postal Identification of the state. In other words, CA for California, NY for New York, or TX for Texas, etc. One probably must make a Freedom of Information Act, a FOIA request, or the state equivalent in California, for instance, one might use the Information Practices Act, IPA, for procuring your SID file. 24. Send off a FOIA to the FBI for your FBI rap sheet, which not only contains the record of every arrest or detention alienation to which your strawman has ever been subjected, but allegedly can be used legally to provide conclusive and indisputable proof that the strawman is a separate and distinct legal entity in the nature of a corporation and created by the state. It references an organizational ID number, just like the corporate police agencies have, etc., this is prima facie evidence for diversity of citizenship. In addition, the FBI rap sheet is invaluable if you're trying to clear your record or restore your rights or attack an agency legally. In addition to obtaining it by making a FOIA request to the FBI, if you are a guest of the Bureau of Prisons or the BOP, 
You can get it by written request to your case manager since it is in your file. Bureau of Prison guests take notes. The FBI rap sheet does not contain info on the disposition of cases, so it does not come under the recent snitch protection ban on paperwork. That means they cannot refuse to give it to you. Number 25, emulate success. As people who fundamentally simply wish to live in peace and be left alone, study, interact, and engage in using approaches that the best research and judgment indicates might succeed, the experiences and the understanding that often ensues are not only invaluable, but add to the knowledge and tools available to the rest of us. Therefore, networking is invaluable. Number 26, those of us involved in this quest for truth, freedom, and peace will be well advised to abandon the petty bickering, fault-finding, and snap out of our stupor. There's no room left for indulging in such counterproductive luxuries. The good ship U.S. long ago hit the iceberg. It is not the time to be arguing about who gets what space for a deck chair or who can play the next round of shuffleboard. Change your thinking. As we have discussed, we would be enriched instead of diminished when dealing with presentments or anything else in the system. We must replace false and inadequate ideas with true and effective ones. We must be more conscious of our thinking and why we think as we do. A humorous quote by Sidwick punctuates the matter. We think so because other people all think so, or because, or because, after all, we do think so, or because we were told so and think we must think so, or because we once thought so and think we still think so, or because having thought so, we think we will think so. Consequently, if our dealings with the legal system have not been successful in accordance with our priorities, and may be in large measure because we have not thought adequately about and therefore not acted properly concerning that with which we are interacting. We must reevaluate our thinking and change it, and therefore the way we act accordingly. In the words of a fellow named Dale Mahoney, if you continue to think as you always thought, then you'll continue to get what you always got. Is it enough? On its face, a presentment is a demand either to pay something, engage in specific performance, such as coming to court and answering a summons and complaint, or both. It is important to understand that all presentments issued by or within the colorable legal commercial system today are expressions of the wizard's light show. That show appears dazzling and is often terrifying, but is in actuality an insubstantial chimera. It becomes concrete only when we treat it in a manner that, by the rules of the game, authorize it being enforced against us in physical reality. Someone provides you with a presentment because he expects to make money off of you by doing so. The point of this discourse is to elucidate how we can act concerning what has heretofore been damaging to us because of our ignorance and proceed in a manner that can turn the tables to enable us to use the same system and its rules for our betterment. To begin with, we must realize that adopting the ostrich approach of hiding our heads in the sand does not eliminate what we might wish we did not have to deal with. Emulating the ostrich merely exposes our rear end blindly. It does not stop our butt from being kicked, or worse. The second thing to realize is that everything that happens to us is the result of our own creating, either by having caused it expressly or because we placed ourselves in the context where the event we have to deal with 
is allowed to be in our space. In either case, what we have control over is our free will choice as to how to deal with a particular event. In the case of receiving a presentment, we can basically pursue one of the following courses of action. Number one, we can comply with the demand stated on the face of the presentment. Number two, we can deny, fight, try to run from it, etc. Or, number three, we can accept it and thereby neutralize and offset it by allowing the current to flow in a way that discharges the obligation without trying to block or resist the force directed against us. Acting in accordance with either of the first two ways results in an automatic loss. The first way consists of meek compliance, which is a dead loss to us. We just simply pay or perform as they have instructed us to do like good little slaves. The second way constitutes a dishonor, and joining the issue offered to our straw man that can then be enforced by the courts and imposed on us. We give substance and credibility to the wizard's light show. This is also a dead loss because our dishonor ensures that we lose. The third approach involves staying in honor and retaining a posture where we are free to act in a way that redounds to our benefit. If what we experience is the result of our direct creation in the past, acceptance must occur to close the circle on the process involved in our creating by thought and then, sooner or later, experiencing back upon ourselves the result of our own thought creation. We must complete the cause-effect cycle and discharge the imbalanced buildup of charge that remains until the action-slash-reaction account is balanced and the imbalance, in other words, the charge, is discharged. If what we experience is a result of the action of others, we need to do a kind of legal commercial jujitsu that returns the force of their actions back to them without injuring us. All injury we experience in legal commercial matters is a result of essentially two things. Number one, failure to establish on the record and correctly notice the proper parties of our position as the living principal, creditor, and authorized representative for our straw man slash all caps name. All law functions on the basis of presumptions. A major presumption on the basis of which mankind is enslaved is the presumption that our failure to clarify and establish on the record who we regard ourselves as being and in what capacity we are functioning signifies the system's right to act against us as it wishes. As per the maxim of law, he who fails to assert his rights has none. The seventh commercial maxim is apt. A matter must be expressed to be resolved. If we do not provide notice of our position, no one else can, nor does anyone in the system have any motivation to try to assert our position for us, especially vice versa them. If we want our position noticed, we and we alone must do it. If we fail to notify appropriate officials and agencies of our position, there is no basis upon which anyone in the system can relate to us other than in accordance with the system's rules and presumptions, which operate with impunity unless properly controverted by us. Their position is the only one on the table because we have not introduced our own into the equation. A gold prospector must drive a stake in each corner of a plot he is staking his claim on if he wants to have others recognize his claim. Without doing so, nothing exists to communicate his intent or be treated as if the plot of ground is his as opposed to anyone else's. He has not acted in accordance with the rules of the game that must be followed for him to achieve his objective. Number two, acting in dishonor 
and thereby engaging in resistance that disallows pass-through of the current that enables us to retain our freedom and autonomy without being damaged. Resistance in a circuit creates heat. By resisting, we bear the burden in our own biological circuitry, which remains until discharge. This absence of discharge can weaken, exhaust, burn up, or in some way debilitate us. It is a cardinal spiritual maxim that victory is achieved through surrender. To understand this statement, we must define the meaning of the operative words victory and surrender. By victory, we do not mean physical conquest and domination, which is futility born on acting on, attempting to render durable in some manner the illusion of separation and superiority of one aspect of the one over the other. In this situation, an ego imagines not only that it is separate from others, all and everything, but it's superior to other expressions of the same oneness. This delusion is a major source of sorrow and suffering that has plagued mankind throughout history. Using force and artifice is an attempt to get reality to conform to a flawed and vain abstraction of its own foregone futility that leaves carnage and suffering in its way. The term surrender is intended to convey the concept of expanding receptivity rather than outward-directed action without first obtaining the benefit of more thought, insight, and information than one has at the time. Receptivity involves opening one's mind, letting go of the attitude that one already knows the truth, releasing preconceived ideas about what one is experiencing, and inwardly expanding the vessel of one's being, not only for the purpose of perceiving matters more fully, clearly, and wholly, free of distorting, deluded, and preconceived biases, but providing the conscious mind with more comprehension than had previously been the limits of one's thinking and consciousness. Depth always absorbs. And, as a Zen master once said, it is impossible to discover when preoccupied with the familiar. There are no limits or bounds to the size, scope, and depth of our vessel, nor to the nature of the content we can consciously contain. This is akin to a takeoff of an old rhyme. Little forms have bigger forms on their backs to bite them, and bigger forms have bigger forms, and so on ad infinitum. Further significance of surrender in nears in realizing that we see things far more as we see ourselves are than, than what something is in itself. A moment reflection reveals that anything can be viewed, perceived, thought about, and acted upon in an infinite number of possible ways by an infinite number of possible beings. Everyone observes and experiences life from his or her unique nature and position in space-time. No two perspectives are the same, nor can be. As someone once quipped, when you hear two accounts of the same automobile accident, it makes you wonder about history. The Bible is full of admonitions against acting in violation of this truth, vice vice others, such as, Thou shalt not bear false witness, and, Judge not, that ye be not judged. What certainty, after all, does anyone possess about the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that might justify slandering or judging someone? Therefore, surrender really means giving up one's entrenched position in favor of allowing clearer and more holistic understandings to emerge. The ultimate end of this approach is to perceive existence as it is, rather than how we might think or believe it is. Two further quotes of Zen masters come to mind. Do not seek the truth, merely cease to cherish opinions. And if you understand, things are such as they are. If you don't understand, 
things are such as they are. The actual truth of anything is the such-as-it-is nature of its existence. The more we live in this manner, the more grounded in happiness and integrity our life can become. In court. Why do we lose in court? It is not because it is a military or maritime court, which it is, often evidenced by the gold fringe on the flag. It is not that we are under implied or adhesion contracts to some municipal corporation. If so, we could raise the issue of contract law. It is not a plethora of other reasons advocated by innumerable patriots, all of which reasons are rabbit trails. So, the short answer to why we lose in court is that we lose if, number one, we dishonor any of the people and processes that impinge upon us, thereby enjoining the issues described in the presentment so that we become bound by the matter. We have no right to deny or speak to anyone else's utterances, and doing so lands us in the middle of their novel. Number two, we traverse and therefore contractually amalgamate ourselves and our straw man into the court's jurisdiction so that we endure in the flesh the results of whatever trial or hearing might occur dealing with our straw man. It is the straw man, it appears, is tried and sentenced, not us. By traversing, however, the real us gets to go along for the ride and experience in reality the judgment against the straw man. Number three, we fail to discharge the charges, thereby authorizing the system to enforce commensurate consequences on us. Number four, we have no facts and evidence substantiating our position placed by a competent witness on the court record of the case. This crucial matter is discussed below in greater detail. And number five, we have not bonded the case. Let us briefly discuss these issues. Number one, we avoid acting in dishonor by accepting and returning for value whatever presentment or charging instrument we are provided with and by not arguing, fighting, denying, or ignoring. Number two, we do not join the dispute by traversing, by which we leave our own ground and tacitly give reality and credibility to the opponent's claims and allegations that are not facts but only presumptions and assumptions until we stipulate expressly or by dishonor. And joining the issue is a presentment, such as denying allegations or charges, or saying that we don't owe an alleged debt, is a dishonor that enjoins us with the court's jurisdiction and our own straw man and create a dispute that grants the court subject matter jurisdiction. It sucks us up into the made-up game of imaginary disputes between fictitious entities. The definition of traverser in Black's Law Dictionary confirms the point succinctly. Traverser. In pleading, one who traverses or denies. A prisoner or party indicted, so-called from his traversing the indictment. Black's Law Dictionary, 5th edition, Page 1,345. Number three, whenever we, in other words, our straw men, are charged with something, that charge is a bookkeeping entry of liability on the ledger and must be discharged by entering a balancing offsetting asset. Filling in the asset side usually occurs by the loser parting with public funds of some kind, such as a check or Federal Reserve notes or doing community service or being bonded and incarcerated as the surety. When we discharge the charges by acceptance for value, which is a banker's acceptance, we end the controversy and become the owner of the contract. Each of us is a private banker. Under banking, our acceptance and return for value establishes the facts and makes us owner of the transaction. We then own both sides of the deal, in other words, both the creditor and debtor side. 
by accepting from the private side and providing the value from the private, in other words, substance side, we end the dispute and remove from the equation any controversy for a court to resolve. Number four, it is imperative to understand that the admiralty equity courts of the system do not deal with reality, substance, and facts and evidence. They deal in assumptions, which are unsupported claims and charges, and presumptions, unexpressed rules for which the system operates, and stipulations, agreements that create the facts. Because they are straw men and cannot be competent witnesses through sworn testimony, neither attorneys nor officials can place actual facts and evidence on the record that a judge can judicially notice, such as claims supported by sworn testimony, either through an affidavit sworn true, correct and complete, or testimony under oath on the witness stand in open court or deposition. In the celebrated voter punch cards incident in Florida in the Al Gore dispute with George Bush in the last election, Gore's attorneys introduced a batch of voter punch cards as evidence for the purpose of proving that the election was flawed. The judge never even looked at the evidence and threw Gore's attorneys out of the court. Although the press and public were not aware of the rationale for the action, the judge's basis for doing what he did was that the cards were never presented to the court by a competent witness. There had to be a witness to state that the cards came from such and such a precinct and that the one testifying witnessed the cards being gathered up, boxed and transported, and was stating such matters under oath. Without such competent witnesses, there was nothing on which the judge could rely to substantiate any claim that there had been tampering with the cards during the gathering and transporting thereof. Attorneys can neither be competent witnesses nor can any statements that they make be considered testimony. They deal in assumptions, hearsay, and dishonor. So much for high-priced lawyers. Number five. Recently, some people in Nebraska allegedly avoided having to go to prison for some time by posting, at the last minute, a single-page bond. The text of this bond, along with some explanation and comments accompanying this article, a presumption is defined as follows. A presumption is a deduction, which the law expressly directs to be made from particular facts. And a presumption, unless declared by law to be conclusive, may be controverted by other evidence, direct or indirect. But, unless controverted, the jury is bound to find according to the presumption. Evidence Code, subsection 602, etsec Henry Bauer, 1889. The bottom line is that whenever we receive any kind of presentment from a tax bill to a summons, complaint, indictment, etc., our proper course of action is to accept and return the offer for value, served by a notary on our behalf. Discharge of the obligation occurs at the moment the offer receives our communication. Contractual ratification has occurred through offer and acceptance. The circuitry closes on itself. The plus and minus polarities discharge, and nothing remains upon which anyone can act. A charging instrument, which is a presentment, is an offer, an obligation created on the public side by inventing a new borrowing against the creditor, which is the source of the credit, on the private side. Your straw man is offered the opportunity to assume the obligation. What we must understand is that, number one, any presentment is a concocted debt on the public side created by the party responsible for issuing the presentment. Number two, whenever you, in other words, your straw man, receive a presentment through your acceptance and return for value of the presentment, 
you can perform a legal commercial jujitsu by diverting the force of the presentment back on the issuer. Number three, the fabricated obligation constitutes a new borrowing, in other words, creation of more public debt, which they wish your straw man to assume, and which you, at the expense of your body and labor, must discharge. Number four, any presentment can be discharged by providing the offerer with the charging instrument accepted in return for value and utilizing your exemption as the source of the credit for discharging the obligation. Number five, a presentment is not an obligation that attaches to you unless you dishonor and do not discharge it. Number six, when you proceed correctly, the charging instrument constitutes funds that can be used to make you money. Number seven, if the offerer does not honor your acceptance and return for value, then he is the one in dishonor and can be made the party obligated to pay you for costs, fees, and damages on the basis of his dishonor. Understanding the above scenario serves greatly to remove fear, false evidence appearing real, from the equation, especially when we realize not only that the presentment can be neutralized, but that it can be turned to our advantage. The advantages can occur not only by what might ensue from the offer's dishonor of our acceptance and return for value, but by other means also. So long as one is ungrounded in his own existential spiritual position and ignorant of what the system is and how to deal with it effectively, fear is inevitable. This is because the system is one of endless applications of legalized violence on the basis of fictions and frauds promulgated by other beings. None of these paper assaults, presentments, is our creation or our property or province concerning which we have authority to speak. They are all the truth and actions of the originator, and therefore the originator's property and domain. Unless we understand what is happening, we are in the dark having to deal with things that can destroy us without possessing any ability to fathom and disarm them. The catch-22 of the system is that both traversing and joining the issue in any manner, and ignoring, doing nothing, constitute a dishonor guaranteeing our loss. The way out of this damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't double-bind is to comment on the paradox. Problems are not solved on the level of problems. They are solved by operating from another domain, or meta-level, which in this case is our ground and truth for which we have exclusive knowledge and authority to speak and concerning which they have none. Now, they must deal with our world, which they cannot address and cannot enter, and from that position, we require them to put up or shut up. Since they cannot substantiate the truth and validity in our domain, which is more powerful and fundamental than where they are operating, we can by so doing turn the tables on them. Officials, attorneys, and banks do not want to honor this process for a number of reasons, largely because they have been making money by usurping and using our exemption do not wish either to be a stop from doing so or seeing us regain our sovereignty and autonomy by asserting our standing as creditor and using our exemption for our benefit and not theirs. Standing in status. Whenever you receive a bill, citation, summons, complaint, indictment, etc., what you receive is an original issue presentment. It is also an assumption, a concoction contrived in the mind of the living being who dreamt it up since there is no bona fide assessment for the obligation. 
There is no commercial paperwork to support the contractual basis upon which the alleged obligation is based. Remember that the entire colorable system functions by fictions and frauds. There's only presumption of assessment, in other words, color of assessment, since the presenter of the presentment did not attach anything of value to substantiate and support his position. Hence, the phrase in some accepted for value documents, I did not find your check enclosed. The document is grounded in the imaginary. Nevertheless, it can be traced to the author of the document and whatever straw man on behalf of which he acted to create the new debt currency. The presenter is giving you something created by inventing a debt and can be transformed into something of advantage to you if you treat it correctly. Any genuine assessment involves a valid contract bearing the authorized signature of all parties involved, plus proof of breach of the contract by the one who is then rendered a debtor, plus an accounting of the some certain amount owed based on a true bill that itemized the particular dollar amounts owed for what specific things, such as goods and services received and not paid for, or specific performance promised and not performed plus proof of the authority for those trying to collect from the debtor to operate as third-party debt collectors, plus a statement of commercial liability staked by every alleging party, anyone who makes any bookkeeping entry or acts in the matter, to back up his claims by indemnifying those harmed in the case he is in error. Those acting in the system, such as attorneys and government officials, have none of these prerequisites. They have only assumptions, which have become actualized in our lives by making the assumptions real throughout traversing or dishonoring. Number 12, the foundation of every record is the commercial paperwork consisting of two essential elements. Number one, a ledger of accounting consisting of an itemized list of goods and services provided by whom to whom with corresponding monetary values indicated for each entry backed by the contracts and records that substantiate the validity of each ledger entry. And number two, Record of accountability, identifying the party who takes commercial liability and responsibility for the accuracy, relevance, and verifiability of each bookkeeping entry. Although technically every document in commerce must be executed by or under an affidavit sworn true, correct, and complete, the commerce of the world consists of billions of people engaging in countless commercial transactions a day. Obviously, it is impractical for the trillions of documents involved in actual commerce to be done by taking each one to a notary to be certified and sworn as being true, correct, and complete. Commerce, to be practical, must be efficient, streamlined, and minimalist. The force and effect of every document, however, is ultimately its accuracy, relevance, and verifiability combined with the sworn statement of some living sentient being that he takes responsibility for the validity of the document and whatever information it contains. This must be so because every legal and commercial document involves someone paying and someone receiving gain. Since every such document involves a potential loss to somebody, accuracy and responsibility, accountability, and liability must be inherent in all legal commercial instruments. Therefore, although not in actuality sworn true, correct, and complete, all commercial documents may be enforced as if they were. Reality cannot be cheated. No matter how fantastic and removed from reality and sanity matters become in the phantasmagorical public domain of assumptions, derivatives, fictions, and fraud, ultimately everything must be grounded in and be able to be traced back to the ground level, 
which is the combination of accuracy, which is truth, and individual responsibility and accountability. Documents do not write themselves. Some living being writes them. When you accept and return an offer for value, it must be remembered that the value is that which you, as the real being, give to the transaction. Only the private side, such as you, your labor, and your private accrual account, private treasury UCC contract trust account, which is your exemption as the creditor from which the credit that creates the currency on the public side is derived, can have and give value. The public side is imaginary, created in the mind, and possesses neither value nor substance nor sovereignty nor life. Public entities such as corporations, trusts, partnerships, businesses, estates, and everyone's all-cab name, etc., are persons, which are legal entities, ends legis. They are not real beings. By being creatures of the state, persons have status, which is fictitious and legal, not standing, which pertains to real beings and what is lawful. You, as the reality, are the substance and the source of all the public side reflects and from which it is derived. Any presentment you receive from the public side is a notice of the creation of a charge, an open account, which remains unneutralized unless you discharge it. You discharge the charge by performing a banker's acceptance that provides the asset-slash-credit that balances the liability debt cross on the accounting ledger. You want to use your exemption, which is inexhaustible, for this purpose. In such case, you can discharge any obligation. Anything that can be charged by creating debt against credit can be discharged by performing an accounting offset by using the same credit. When you accept an offer and return it for value in your real sovereign capacity as creditor, you have accord and satisfaction. The fact is you're autographed. You, as the real being, are a lawful man capable of bearing a bond. You possess rectus in cure, meaning right in court, or standi in judicio, meaning standing in law. That means that you are capable of bearing a note. Only a lawful man can do that. So the lawful man puts his autograph on the line, establishing the fact private men and women use autographs, self-generated marks. Public side employees use signatures, signs of their juristic persona. To understand more of the monetary system operating in the world today, we must make a short digression into history. The Legislative Act of February 21, 1871, 41st Congress, Session 3, Chapter 62, page 419, chartered a federal corporation entitled United States, a.k.a. U.S. Incorporated, a commercial agency of what was originally designated as Washington, D.C. U.S. Incorp. is a corporation of the international bankers at al. and outside the Constitution. The jurisdiction of the U.S. Corporation is private, commercial, international, and military admiralty maritime. Every citizen of the United States is a citizen of U.S. Incorporated, which is a corporation, not a country, and bereft of standing in law as well as access to genuine law, meaning common law, that was accessible to Americans under their contract with the parent corporation, United States of America. Every citizen of the United States is also an enemy of the state, 
In other words, the United States government is codified in the Amendatory Act of 1933 to the original 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act. This is codified inter alia at 12 U.S.C. 95. The 1871 Constitution of the United States of the private corporation, U.S. Incorporated, is identical to that of the 1787 Constitution for the United States of America, except for the difference in the 13th Amendment. In the USA Constitution, the 13th Amendment is one forbidding attorneys from holding public office. In the U.S. Constitution, the 13th Amendment is a prohibition against slavery and indentured servitude. In 1933, U.S. Incorporated declared bankruptcy as publicly noticed inter alia by House Joint Resolution 192 of June 5, 1933, Public Law 73-10. Perry v. United States, 1935, 294 U.S., 330 through 381. The result is that there is no money, in other words, real money, which is substance, such as gold and silver coin, that pays debt and is the coin of sovereigns. There is now only the representation or symbol of money consisting of debt created against credit, appropriate for bankrupt citizens devoid of capacity. The credit used to create and back the debt currency is provided by us through having given our gold in the 1930s and our labor ever since to back the failed corporation. Among many significant consequences of this are that there are now only bills of exchange, notes, and other evidences of debt to circulate as money. All currency today is created by signature. When we accept and return a presentment for value, we discharge an obligation and render the offeror devoid of claim. This banker's acceptance utilizes our standing in law as the creditor, the source of the credit, to discharge the obligation by using our exemption for offset and adjustment. We become established as creditor and owner of both sides of the transaction. In the past, we have usually sent the presentment back to the issuer ourselves. Now we realize that it is far superior to use a notary to send it to them. The notary does not care what is on the presentment or our paperwork or the amount involved. In other words, whether a document says $1 or $10 billion. The only thing the notary cares about is whether the document has a place for endorsement and a jurid, thereby justifying taking your fee, putting your document in an envelope, and serving it upon the other party, saying, respond in 10 days. This 10-day time period is in accord with Regulation Z, Federal Truth in Lending, 15 U.S.C., 1601 et sec, consisting of three days for mailing, Three days for the issuer of the presentment to decide what he's going to do about your acceptance and return for value, and three days for return mail, plus one day for the day of service, which does not count on the time clock. The total time is, therefore, 10 days. When we have a notary serve our acceptance and return of the presentment to the offerer, the notary's address is given for the respondent to send the check, remedy, or reply to. When a respondent does not respond to the notary within the required 10 days with a notice of discharge of the obligation, he is in dishonor of our acceptance for value. He has not adjusted the account and is keeping the account open and the charge in place, continuing to cause trouble for us and make money by stealing our exemption. When no response from the original presenter is received by the notary within the required 10 days, we have the notary issue a certificate of non-response, which is a certificate of dishonor. At this point, the dishonor of the issuer of the presentment is established on the commercial record. 
A notary logbook is an irrefutable substantiation of the facts and admissible as evidence in any court. The key to the notarial process is that a certificate of non-response issued by a notary is a judgment in estoppel. The first certificate of non-response is a judgment in estoppel on the law. The second judgment is estoppel on the facts or money. Ideally, we should do both when dealing with a presentment, since we wish not only to discharge the obligation, but use the process to better us commercially. We must remember who and what a notary is. Historically, the notary wrote the king's papers. He issued the writs. A public notary is higher than a judge. In addition, notaries have had from inception two primary functions. One, to protest international bills of exchange, and two, be a bonded, neutral party who holds the commercial record and can place evidence into a court of any jurisdiction. Thus, the notary, as the ultimate holder of the commercial record, is higher than any judge inasmuch as no judge can act without the record. The great value to us is that through the notary we can place unimpeachable evidence into a court case for the record. It is crucial to understand the following. Number one, the commercial tribunals or courts of the U.S. and the states on the private equity admiralty jurisdiction of the alleged creditors in bankruptcy, the International Monetary Fund, etc. Number two, as admiralty courts, the tribunals deal in matters of contract in which the defendant is presumed to have contracted on land to be on the ship where the captain's word is law. One is presumed guilty unless proven innocent, and the burden of proof is on the defendant to prove that he is not guilty. In other words, prove a negative. Number three, as equity courts, the ultimate arbiter of a matter is the conscience of the court, which is how the judge happens to feel that day, and is not anything accessible by a defendant. There is no conclusion of law and findings of fact issued since it is an equity, not law. Nor are there any facts, nor does any documentary material evidence exist established on the record of a case. An attorney, as we have discussed, cannot be a competent witness. Number four, since these commercial tribunals function in a private admiralty equity jurisdiction that does not have any capacity to access law, it cannot deal in facts or reality. It must deal on color of those things. In other words, assumptions, color of facts. The assumptions become facts when both parties agree or stipulate that they are true. Number five, you cannot invalidate one assumption with another assumption. You can invalidate an assumption only by placing facts and evidence on the record. Number six, Anyone in dishonor in any legal proceeding has forfeited his capacity to state a claim upon which relief can be granted and must legally commercially lose if the other side remains in honor and proceeds correctly. Number seven, if both sides of the dispute are in dishonor, which is normally the case since all attorneys argue and dispute, as do most pro se litigants, whoever is ruled as the winner is a function of the judge's discretion concerning which he has carte blanche to proceed as he wishes. Number eight, if we can enter documentary material evidence as facts on the record and require the judge to take judicial notice of that evidence, we have a platform from which we can win, because without stipulations, the other side has no evidence or facts to support their claims. Number nine, as a result of the above, 
it is logical to conclude that not only must we place our evidence into court in any case in which we are involved, have the judge judicially notice it and act on it in a way that provides us with a win, but placing evidence on the record and causing its existence to ensure that we prevail is the only reason we should ever go to court or even deal with a court. Number 10, we must act from the beginning and ever and always for the purpose of setting our evidence on the record in any case in which we might have to be involved so that we can not only win, but if we act correctly, make money, perhaps a considerable amount, from the situation. The next logical question is, how can we place evidence on the record in a case? The following means may be deployed for entering evidence on the record. Number one, deposition. Number two, testimony in open court. Number three, affidavit. Not as good as the first two unless one can cross-examine the affiant on the witness stand. And number four, entry of evidence into the record by notary. Of all the above-cited methods for entering evidence into a case, the fourth method, the notarial process, may be the most desirable. By doing so, one may enter the evidence one chooses by means that must be admitted as evidence on the record, which no court can refuse to enter and do so preferably without having to endure the time, effort, and expense of depositions and attending court proceedings. We must always remember the following. Number one, stay in honor and never dishonor anything or anyone, including policemen, officials, judges, and even attorneys. Your opponents must go into dishonor on their own of their own volition. Number two, put the issuer of a presentment in a position of having to put up or shut up. In other words, place the burden of proof on him. Number three, establish all documents substantiating our claims on the record of the notary and the evidentiary record of any court case involved with the transaction. Number four, relate properly with everyone involved, especially the court and judge, so that you can make the best use of your situation. In other words, prevail and also make money. And number five, do not talk any reason that does not serve your interest and be prepared as much as possible to know what you wish to accomplish, what not to allow to happen, and the proper way to say what can succeed in achieving the results you desire. They must have your words, your admissions, and even your legal determinations to hang you. Number six, never make an offer, a supplicant-dependent position. Be an acceptor instead. The power is in acceptance, and without acceptance, we cannot win. So the tangible steps, processes, or documents involved in dealing with any presentment consist of several phases. Number one, execution, filing, and notice of foundational documents stating rights, standing, and capacity. Number two, administrative actions concerning the presentment, both pre-court and non-court. Number three, documents and dialogue in court. Number four, if the issue is a mortgage, securing both legal and equitable title to the property as well as right of possession must all be done. And number five, collecting on the money. A note on collecting on the money. Collecting from dishonoring purses can and has been done, but a discussion of the process is beyond the scope of this article. It is enough at this point to master the essentials, execute necessary paperwork, and remain free of debt and incarceration. In the event they ignore everything we do, we can proceed to collect from them by a number of possible means, including non-judicial strict foreclosure, 
as outlined in Chapter 9 of the UCC. We can also instigate a bankruptcy proceeding in which we are debtor in possession and thereby able to accept or reject all offers. They are delinquent creditors, and we can request that an offset be performed that results in our collecting against their bonds, equity, or risk management department. Part 3. Civil and Criminal Charges Whenever you receive a traffic ticket, citation, summons, complaint, indictment, etc., what you receive is a public offer. It is an offer of indebtedness to your straw man. It is conclusive presumption, in other words, fact, that your straw man is obligated to provide the funds if you act in dishonor. In commerce, the penalty for being in dishonor is losing one's equity, Remember that no court in the system, since they are all in the public realm, can see, address, or deal with the real you. Public courts can deal only with assumptions and fictions in their colorable, phony system. As such, there are no facts other than what is stipulated to by the parties. Agreement. If an adversary says the sky is green and you agree, that agreement constitutes a fact. The commercial tribunals of the system are all contract courts, and your stipulation is contractual ratification, which is the law of the matter. People lose in the courts because they try to counter or neutralize one assumption with another. If you are in dishonor, you'll be forced to provide through your straw man, public funds, Federal Reserve notes or equivalent, one way or the other, to satisfy the obligation. This can be by simply parting with Federal Reserve notes doing community service, or by being incarcerated as the surety for the obligations of your straw man. In the latter case, they create the bond by further borrowing against your straw man. This generates funds that are used to balance the books and also make considerable additional money for the courts, judges, attorneys, etc. Given the immensity of money made per the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report and the Long Form Annual Financial Report, which is several times the total amount of the entire economy of the private sector, the mania in the United States for charging, prosecuting, and incarcerating is understandable. The following are important considerations in the equation. Number one, as investors in the bankrupt corporation called the United States, as well as the United States of America, the parent corporation, we, as real people, are the true creditors of the country and source of the wealth as discussed above. As such, we are exempt from taxation from the public side. The creditor and sovereign cannot be taxed by a system that functions by using the credit of the creditor. The public side is debt, operating by borrowing against us. Being derivative and dependent, the tail cannot wag the dog. The reflection cannot dominate the reality it reflects. The system does not deal with us as real beings. It deals with a fiction, a symbol, which is not us and therefore does not require the system to deal with us as the creditor and sovereign. Moreover, the public domain can tax and regulate only what is created in and belongs to the system, 
which can be only straw men and never real beings. Number two, as creditors, sovereigns, and true owners, preferred stockholders of the country, we have authority to offset any obligation imposed on our straw man by the public side by making our exemption, which is unlimited, available to discharge the charges. The source from which the obligation was derived is our own credit, which can therefore be used as the asset to offset the obligation created by borrowing against that credit. The size of the purported obligation, as well as its severity, is technically irrelevant. That which can be invented in the form of an alleged obligation can be offset, in other words, discharged, with the same ease as the obligation was created. All public debt is nothing but numbers, digits in the matrix, promissory notes creating currency by signature, got us into this mess, promissory notes can get us out. Footnote 16. It is often considerably more difficult using the acceptance for value process for dealing with matters involving a mala in se crime than a mala prohibita offense. Although all crimes in the system today are commercial crimes. See 27 USC 72.11. Number four. The only way we can discharge and offset such charges completely, neutralize and eliminate them totally and close the accounting, is through an acceptance and return for value through the use of our exemption, which we make available to be used for exchange as the funds for discharging the obligation slash charges. For the maxim of law, a thing is bound, so it is unbound. Number five, when we, as the creditor and sovereign, proceed as above, we are functioning as the king. The colorable public side is rendered dependent upon and subservient to our acts. By law, public officers are fiduciaries and have no discretion. Compliance is mandatory. It is unrealistic, of course, to think that those who structure and operate the system for commercial enrichment and power will go gently into that good night when we use the system for our protection and betterment. In addition, and of crucial importance, it is to neutralize the unrevealed presumption on which the system operates that we, the real us, have agreed to be united with and treated the same as our straw man. We remove that presumption by noticing the proper parties of the foundational documents referenced below. Many times when these documents are placed on the record in a court case, the case disappears. If they cannot access the real you and your body, labor, and property, they are left hanging out to dry in their cloud cuckoo land. What to do upon receiving a presentment? Receipt of an offer presentment will occur in one of the following ways. Number one, by mail. Number two, in person. Or number three, after arrest and being placed in custody. Herewith below, we will concern ourselves with the first two modes of receiving a presentment. Number one, as soon as you receive an offer, such as a bill or a statement you wish to discharge, make a copy preferably a color copy, certified as true and exact copy by a notary, of the offer and keep that copy in a safe place. If you're already in court, go to court and obtain at least two copies certified by the court clerk of the documents filed in a case by the other party. Then use these as you would an ordinary presentment following the procedure set forth hereunder. Number one, after making a copy of the essential documents issued by the other side, and print over the first page of the original of each document the following text. There are numerous versions of this and opinions as to which is best. This presentment is accepted for assessed value 
and returned in exchange for settlement and closure of this accounting, certified and sworn on the commercial liability of the authorized representative as true, correct, and complete, with all related endorsements front and back, prepaid, exempt from levy, adjust the account, and release the orders to the authorized representative immediately. Autograph postage stamp, two cents, U.S. is okay, and then dated. Number two, if you've had your bullet stamp made, which includes your full name and upper and lower case, some people use all lowercase letters in their documents for ancient linguistic reasons, as well as your EIN number and the terms stating that you are operating in capacity of being the living principal and authorized representative, stamp your bullet stamp in gold ink so that it is over part of the accepted and returned for value, in other words, ARFB stamp above, and also across the upper left-hand portion of the postage stamp. Footnote 17. There appear to be four alphabets in English. Print, including uppercase letters, in whole or part. Print, in all lowercase letters, uppercase cursive and lowercase cursive. Allegedly cursive handwriting joins phonetic symbols in a way that removes their individuality and therefore does not verify, certify the pronunciation of your name, voiding capacity for your autograph to state a claim. This is why one should always also print his name thereby having a double witness removing ambiguity, which may be construed as fraud in law that may require a third party, in other words, a judge to adjudicate. Also, language, multiple languages, in other words, Babel, as in the Tower of Babel, came from the ancient Phoenicians and was, among other things, developed as weapons. Writing in all lowercase letters was allegedly the mode of writing used by the elite, whereas use of all capital letters was reserved for ships, dead fictions, and slaves. One may review the term Capitus Dementia Maxima in Black's Law Dictionary 6th edition concerning this matter. Number three, autograph your name at a diagonal across the postage stamp so that your autograph is done over a part of the acceptance return for value text across the postage stamp and on the presentment itself. Use blue or purple ink. Put in the date by hand. Footnote 18, a long-standing concern about what color ink is best to use for such things as signing a document with an accepted for value stamp has been recently resolved by this author, who has now concluded that red is not good, blue or purple is optimal. Rather than indicating blood and the living being as we had thought, the significance in the color scheme of the system indicates that red expresses deficiency, such as being in the red. Number four. If you do not have your bullet stamp, use the postage stamp as above, autographing on the diagonal across the stamp, filling in the date, and also printing your EIN number as per the following. This presentment is accepted for assessed value and returned in exchange for settlement and closure of this accounting, certified and sworn on the commercial liability of the authorized party as true, correct, and complete, with all related endorsements front and back, prepaid, exempt from levy. Adjust the account and release the orders to the authorized representative immediately. Autograph, two-cent postage stamp, and your EIN number. Number five, your package to the offer will consist of A, a verified notice by affidavit notarized that informs the presenter of what the documents are that are attached or enclosed, what is required of the presenter, Notice that the notary retaining a copy of the documents being sent and is acting as a disinterested third party, and that if the presenter does not respond to the notary within the required time, T, 
10 days in most cases, with notice that he has adjusted the account and the obligation is discharged, a certificate of non-response will be forthcoming from the notary that constitutes a notice of dishonor and judgment and estoppel on the law. B. Your acceptance and return for value presentment, signed and dated by you in blue or purple ink and bearing your private treasury UCC contract trust account number, which is your social security number without dashes. Number six, if the notary does not hear from the offer within 10 days that the discharge has occurred and the accounting is closed, have the notary send the offer a certificate of non-response. This constitutes a certificate of dishonor and a judgment and estoppel on the law, which bars the offer and everyone else from ever coming after you again concerning the issues in the offer. If a court case is involved, have your notary also notarize such things as the following. Number one, certify a copy of the oath of office of whatever judge is involved. If the identity of the judge is known at that point, as obtained from the Secretary of State of the State or the County Recorder or whatever office is holding it. Number two, notice of waiver of protest. This document requests the court to waive any fee, fine, cost, or charge the court is looking for. A default position by the court is automatic record of involuntary bankruptcy if the court dishonors your request as a living principal and authorized representative for your straw man. Your notice informs them that their dishonor constitutes a waiver of right to protest the matter or anything connected therewith, henceforth. Number three, notice of acceptance, standing, and status, request for remedy. This pleading format document instructs the court to discharge all charges and dismisses the case. Based upon your acceptance and return for value of the charging instruments and all court documents, along with filing the bond, or in the alternative, produce the assessment for the charges, whether the charging instrument is a citation, complaint, information, statement, or indictment. See instructions for executing and using employer ID number B3 Supra. It is an automatic dishonor forfeit position if the court does not provide the assessment for the charges if you require it. Substantiation of the bona fide nature of the assessment consists of providing the commercial paperwork that reveals the origin, nature, particulars, and legitimacy of the assessment which, to be genuine, must be executed by the responsible party under affidavit sworn true, correct, and complete with stated commercial liability risked by the responsible party in case he is found to be in error and swearing to the accuracy, relevance, contractual validity, and verifiability of all allegations made and the exactitude of the some certain amount of the assessment. Failure to put up or shut up in this regard signifies the court stipulation that it is continuing to entertain prosecution of non-existent charges. Number four, bond. Two options. A, single-page bond on court pleading format. This bond is filed in the court on court pleading format. Such format renders the document more familiar in appearance and therefore more easily filed than trying to file papers that are not in pleading format. Elaboration on the bond, its use, and history of success are discussed hereunder. Or B, request for appearance bond. This document is a court brief that instructs the court to have an appearance bond issued at no cost to you in order to underwrite the case and the appearance of your straw man at scheduled court hearings. The court's failure to issue the bond allows you to utilize their dishonor obstruction as a grant of their signature by accommodation to be used in the subrogation surety bond. You notice the court that you're requesting an appearance bond backed by your exemption on the private side 
at no cost to you. Technically, the granting by the court of your request discharges all obligations connected with the case, ends the dispute, and makes you the owner of the matter. At this time, we are awaiting final outcome of using this process. If the matter is a commercial bill, such as a credit card statement or other invoice, and they ignore what you have done and continue sending you more invoices, treat each new bill as an original presentment. Each statement is another offer on which you can do the same process. This is true of any matter, such as mortgages, credit cards, etc. The offeror's non-response signifies his tacit stipulation that he owes you the amount on your bill. He has implicitly agreed that he owes you the funds by not responding. He has invoked the doctrine of acquiescence and estoppel by silence. As valuable as a judgment and estoppel on the law is, it is not the best we can make of a situation. We would like to make money from the event. For this, we need a second judgment and estoppel, one on the facts and the money. When you do this, you establish on the record the amount that the offeror owes you in cost, fees, and damages. The amount can be anything you choose, since only you can decide what you think the matter is worth to you. Besides, it is all nothing but digits in the matrix. If a court procedure is involved, as soon as possible file a court brief in standard court pleading format entitled Notice of Acceptance, by which you notice the court of the following. Number one, you've accepted the charging instrument for value, banker's acceptance, and returned it in exchange for settlement and closure of the accounting concerning the matter. Number two, settlement of the account has been done privately by exchanging your exemption for discharge of the obligation by use of your private treasury UCC contract trust account your social security number without dashes. Number three, you're operating in capacity of being the living principal, authorized representative and attorney in fact for the straw man. As exhibits slash attachments to your notice of acceptance include color copies, preferably certified by notary as true copies on the following foundational documents. Number one, employer identification one. Number two, private agreement. Number three, security agreement, pains and penalties, and number four, your international hold harmless agreement. Also file a notice of request for waiver, and number two, a notice of request for remedy. Put an autograph and bullet stamp postage stamp on the back lower right hand side of every page of every court brief you file. Obtain multiple copies of your documents to the court and have the clerk file stamp them all. If the case is not dismissed, which it usually is, file the court bond. B. Explanation of the process involved in accusation and prosecution. The situation involved in having to appear in court is as follows. Private substance fact. Existential event. Subjective interpretation by accuser would allege injured party and claim of mens re, criminal intent. Public reflection interpretation. Statutory criminal charges. Civil resolution by agreement of the parties. The sequence is this. Number one, you commit some actual act, such as writing a check on a closed account, which is simply an event in reality. You inscribe something on a piece of paper. So what? You also walk to the grocery store, ran into a friend, and planned a dinner party. All are simple happenings with no legal charge attached. Number two, someone, some living being, the complainant, has considered what you did to be a crime you committed with criminal intent, mens re. In other words, 
out of an infinite number of possible subjective inner motivations you might have had for doing something and an infinite number of possible ways anyone can think about what he perceives of your actions, the accuser chose to adopt the perspective that what you did was a crime that you committed with criminal intent. The first is a value judgment. The second, regardless of substance, is nothing for which anyone but you possess authority to speak. The accuser can neither know your intent, nor does he have any right to speak for it. He can observe your outer behavior, not your inner motivation. Number three, the interpretation that what you did is a crime, as well as what that crime is, what statutes you allegedly violated, the basis of prosecution, etc., are all applications of the facts to the accuser's presumptions, assumptions, priorities, interpretations, and motivations. Number four, the complainant swears out a complaint under affidavit that you did what he says you did and submits it to the prosecuting authorities for them, as public servants, serving the system, not you, to investigate and thereafter prosecute your straw man with you attached unless you rebut the presumption on the contrived union. Number five, the first thing across the mirror, the bar, onto the right-hand side of the bar, in other words, public debt bankruptcy mirage land, is the criminal charges, which is what the public side indicts you for. Since the public side is debt, reflection, and bankruptcy, nothing of substance and reality can originate there. The public side must reflect something real on the private substance side and then adjudicate the imaginary dispute concerning the arbitrary interpretation of the actual event, calling it a crime and saying it violated one or more of their statutes. The event itself is nothing other than an occurrence in reality, a thing in itself that is completely neutral. If someone calls it a crime, that it is his projection interpretation of his mental processes and priorities. What he makes of what you allegedly did is his business, not yours. What do his mental processes have to do with you? He is manufacturing fiction and projecting it on you, attempting to lure you into traversing into his imaginary, let's pretend world and deal with what goes on there. You receive a complaint that says, on or about June 5, 2001, John P. Smith, you, did willfully do blah, blah, blah. So you read this, blush, and say to yourself, angered and fearful inside, that dirty rat, I did not. If you join his game and try to disprove his fiction, you have left your domain, departed from solid ground, and ensconced yourself firmly into a swirling mirage of your accuser's fertile imagination. Why write yourself into his novel? Six, in a criminal case, the system functions by getting people to plead to the criminal statutes on the public side. Then the matter shifts from criminal to the civil, agreement of the parties for resolution. If you take this route, you are down the drain. The proper way is to obtain a civil, meaning money, resolution on the private side so that the dispute is ended at its source and there is no controversy for any tribunal to resolve. This resolution occurs by stipulation between the parties as real beings. Once that agreement is reached on the private side, the origin, the possibility for any public action is eliminated. There is no longer anything to drag across the bar and into the public domain. Number seven, for securing the stipulation between the parties that ends the dispute on the spot, admit to the facts in the charging instrument after having accepted everything for value, of course. This can be accomplished by a statement such as, I have no problem with pleading guilty to the facts stated in the charges. The prosecution says you wrote a check on a closed account. Okay, you did. That is a fact. 
not a charge, so agree with the statement. By so doing, you are not agreeing that what you did was a crime or violated any statute or can be any basis for prosecuting you. You have merely agreed to a fact and reality, thereby reaching a stipulation with the prosecutor that ends the negotiations. Because there is stipulation between the parties, there is no longer any controversy for a court to hear and entertain. The agreement between the two of you ends the matter. When there is agreement on the private substance side, the subject matter can never get to the public side because no dispute exists. Number eight, concerning the bonding of the case, your discharge of the matter by use of your exemption makes you the owner of the transaction. Number nine, keep in mind that if you follow their lure, what they present to you as the way to go, you're dead. They want you to plead to the statutes, not the facts. The statutes are their property, their truth, in other words, fiction, and jurisdiction concerning which you have no authority to deal. You own yourself on the substance side, but have no claim on interpretation of facts that someone alleges on the private side, out of his belfry, that he wants you to deal with on the colorable public side. If a matter is ended at its source, the private domain, there's nothing to bring into the public arena. Number 10. By pleading guilty to the facts on the private side, you're demurring. Who says I can't write a check on my own closed account? I'll place some ink on a piece of paper, but so what? Number 11. Remember that no one on the public side can charge anyone with a crime on the private side. Only people act. Straw men do not and cannot act. Therefore, deal with the matters between you and your adversaries privately, forming private contract, usually by their tacit consent through non-response, between you and them. The terms and conditions of the contract include the fact, established on the notorial record, that they stipulate that the matter is resolved so no dispute exists transit case. Number 12. Someone invoking the system must post a bond to invoke the services of a court. The authorities cannot arrest you without an order, warrant, which is a check, from a court, and the only way a court can obtain the jurisdiction to issue a warrant is by someone having posted a bond, indemnifying the court, and granting the court subject matter jurisdiction, funds against which to execute the warrant slash check, to adjudicate the matters you're being accused of. You must require that they provide the audit trail of the accounting on that bond that allegedly bonds the case. Number 13. If you're presented with a warrant, accept it for value, write exempt from levy on it, sign, date, and return it to the court. This grants the court authority to use your exemption in exchange for release of the property. In other words, return of the bond to you as the creditor and insurer. Number 14. The court bond gives the court subject matter jurisdiction. If you are the creditor, paying with substance and not liability funds, it is your court. The court serves the creditor. When you have title to the bond behind the criminal prosecution, there is no way you can go to jail because you have discharged the bond that would otherwise result in your being seized and incarcerated as the surety for your straw man that they treat as the debtor, defendant loser, in a dispute. Number 15. If you enter a plea when no bond has been posted, you have broken the law by pleading to non-existent charges, in other words, color of charges. Also, you have granted the court subject matter jurisdiction to prosecute your straw man on the public side as the debtor. Posting a court bond removes all basis for continuing. The matter is resolved by your discharge on the private side. Number 16. Having a hearing in an admiralty court is not a common law right. 
It requires posting a bond so that the court can have in-rim jurisdiction. The property at stake in the proceeding is the bond. You must secure title to the bond behind a criminal prosecution if you wish to be immune from conviction. How do you get title? There must be an agreement between the parties concerning the identity of the creditor on the bond. The court will probably try to secure title by asking you to pay a small fee for filing the bond. This is a trap. One way or another, you must provide the asset that balances the books. The issue is not whether you discharge the obligation, but what kind of funds, in other words, in asset funds or liability funds, you use for doing so. If you use your exemption, you secure title. If you use Federal Reserve notes, you forfeit title. Therefore, you suggest that either the court waive the public administration fee for registering the bond or secure the fee by performing an adjustment and offset through the use of your private treasury UCC contract trust account, your EIN number without dashes. If the court does not do either, it is in dishonor of you as the king creditor authorizing you to discharge the matter by bringing in voluntary bankruptcy against the court to discharge the bond because you have established yourself as the owner by your acceptance for value and willingness to allow your exemption to be used for discharging the obligation. C. Strategies Concerning Court One of the most difficult positions to be in when inside a courtroom is sitting down. It is best to wait outside or in the back of the courtroom until the straw man's name is called. Then walk towards the bar to speak and don't sit down. Sitting is inferior to standing, and if you go through the drill of being in court before the judge enters, standing up upon hearing the bailiff announce, all rise, and then sitting down when instructed to do so, you are signaling by your behavior that you are an obedient serf and subject of the court and within its jurisdiction. This is not a desirable position. A maxim of law concerning this states, it is immaterial whether a man gives his assent by words or by acts and deeds. When your straw man's name is called, when spoken, it sounds the same as your upper and lowercase name. See item sonans, meaning same sound in Black's Law Dictionary 4th edition. When this happens, do not say, here. As soon as you give your name, you testify that you're in the public side. You testify that the real you is the straw man slash defendant on the paperwork at which the judge is looking. You form a contract with the court by which you agree that the real you they be treated in accordance with the way they treat the straw man defendant. You surrender to the court's jurisdiction. You agree to leave your own ground and domain and go join them on the schoolyard in their let's pretend cops and robbers game. The crucial points to keep in mind in any court interaction are as follows. Number one, the courts are equity admiralty probate trust courts, not courts of law. In such courts, there is neither law, nor substance, nor facts, nor evidence, nor charges. There are assumptions, presumptions, color of law, color of substance, color of facts, color of evidence, and color of charges. Officials and attorneys execute the paperwork and pleadings as if, let's pretend presumption, your straw man is the trustee, defendant, actually co-trustee of the public sestue K trust created by the 14th Amendment, with the duty and the state, plaintiff, is the beneficiary. In other words, co-beneficiary of the public Sestway K Trust created by the 14th Amendment, who has allegedly been deprived of his trust benefits by the delinquent trustee. Trustees are always outside common law. Footnote 19. Even the use of the word pay is a trap. We are better off not using it in interacting with the system. 
Since there is no money, but only debt currency derived from borrowing against the people, there is no way to pay a debt. We discharge obligations, not pay debts. Footnote number 20. The CESC Trust is a public charitable collective trust, or PCT, that is constructive and not express. Constructive means that the trust is constructed, created, manufactured, concocted by operation of law. In other words, out of nothing, as just another of an unaccountable number of legal fictions on which the entire system consists, by the whim and fiat of those who own the particular law form in which the trust is indentured and domiciled. In the case of the United States, this jurisdiction is the private, commercial, international, military jurisdiction of the original incorporation of the United States Incorporation in 1871 within the 14th Amendment and emergency war powers implemented at the advent of the Civil War that suspended law and terminated thereafter operation of the de jure government under the original charter, the 1787 Constitution. A citizen of the United States was created by or within the 14th Amendment as a corporate, civilly dead entity operating as a co-trustee of the public charitable trust. The 14th Amendment upholds the debt of the United States of America and U.S. Incorporated. In Section 4 of the Amendment, which states that the debt shall not be questioned, that is part of the terms and conditions of your co-trustee position. If you question the debt, you are in violation of your own contractual obligations. Endeavoring to find fault with the system or any of those operating on its behalf is considered as arguing against yourself, which every judge immediately dismisses as self-evident error, if not insanity. No wonder judges are so fond of ordering psychiatric evaluations for those who appear in court these days. It is presumed that everyone who states that he is a citizen of the United States Incorporated or acts as if he were, has knowingly, intentionally, and voluntarily contracted into the private, military, international, commercial, admiralty, equity law form of the 14th Amendment Public Charitable Trust, surrendered all rights, and agreed to be bound by the alleged resulting contract. One is now on the ship, but the captain's word is law, and trying to protect your rights, find the system in error, or walk off the job is walking off the plane. In the Public Charitable Trust, Every citizen of the United States acts in a dual capacity, as co-trustee and co-beneficiary. This means that as a citizen, you have on the one hand, as co-trustee, obligations and duties such as the requirement to comply with all the system's codes, rules, regulations, laws, statutes, and public policy, and on the other hand, wearing the hat of co-beneficiary, you can receive benefits such as welfare and other Rob Peter to pay Paul token benefits such as retirement benefits, unemployment insurance, and other trinkets doled out in exchange for having, like Esau, sold your birthright for a bowl of porridge. There is no grantor or trustee, although there is a creator, to a public charitable trust because it is an implied trust, in other words, constructed and not formed by express written bilateral contract. Once you are in the public charitable trust, you can contract into Social Security which is a reversionary, revocable trust in the New Deal, a socialist, communist scheme in which all participants are tortfeasors who secure by membership benefits to which they are not entitled by having been extracted at legal gunpoint from other people. Accepting Social Security or any other government benefits is accepting stolen goods, providing the system with an excuse to consider you guilty until proven innocent. Therefore, 
In any court case, the action is being brought by the allegedly offended beneficiary, the plaintiff, as implied co-beneficiary of the public charitable trust against the defendant, the implied co-trustee. This is why the law and facts are all completely irrelevant. If you go into court trying to argue either, you must necessarily lose since the only issue is whether your straw man faithfully performed his duty as trustee of the trust, such as to obey the statutes, pay the taxes, or whatever else is required in accordance with the ever-increasing ocean of bylaws of U.S. Incorporated. If you raise objections of law or facts, you not only traverse and dishonor by arguing and therefore automatically lose, but you give witness testimony against yourself that you are a bad, delinquent trustee trying to escape your duties as co-trustee of the public charitable trust. You're thereby presumed guilty. Your fatal error is not first and foremost that you argued, denied, rebutted, traversed, dishonored, and try to avoid your contractual and fiduciary obligations of a contract you ratify countless times by accepting innumerable government benefits such as Social Security, obtaining a driver's license, getting a passport, etc., 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 as co-trustee, but that you failed to rebut the presumption that you are the co-trustee, in other words, the same as the defendant's strongman citizen. This is why there is only one issue, and all the rest is so much irrelevant froth. The issue is whether or not you rebut the operational presumption. If you do not, nothing else matters. The presumption, where the power and teeth are, stands, and you lose. Number two, you as the living principle are real and exist on the substance private side. The straw man, all caps named defendant, is fictitious and exists on the imaginary public side. The living principle cannot be seen, addressed, or dealt with by the public side, which is a reflection in the mirror and a shimmer. The defendant cannot enter or access the private side, just as the living principle cannot enter the public domain. Number three. It is essential to neutralize the presumption by which the system operates against us, which is that the living principle is presumed to be attached to and united with the straw man, so that whatever is done to the straw man is imposed in the flesh on the living principle. It is the unrebutted presumption of the union of the real and fictitious that enables the court to access the real you. This is why it is crucial to neutralize the presumption and render it inoperable. Number four. You must not traverse or dishonor. You cannot win by arguing in let's pretend mirage land. Number five, you must end the controversy. In other words, terminate the presumption of the existence of a dispute on both the private and public sides. The obligation slash charges must be discharged so that the books balance and you have complied with the law in both domains. Number six, the public side is bankrupt, has no capacity to execute a sentence, and cannot charge you in common law. The charges are in the nature of, meaning colorable, civil or criminal charges in common law, meaning they are in form only without any other substance. This is also, among other reasons, why you cannot lean public officials. Doing so is a common law substance process, and as bankrupt entities, they cannot provide you with a remedy. Trying to lean public officials is a dishonor and crime by endeavoring to impose a common law remedy in a sphere that cannot access common law. Several possibilities in lieu of or in addition to the three-question approach below for dealing with the name issue come to mind. These statements are intended as satisfying all of the above essential elements. When your straw man's name is called or the judge asks you for your name, 
You could say one of the following, whatever you are comfortable with. I am here concerning that matter, or I am here as a third-party intervener in that matter appearing as authorized representative for my client. Footnote 21. The third-party intervener is you, the living principal, acting in your own interest because you have a pre-existing claim against the defendant that precludes them from acting against any version of your all-caps name based on your prior contract with them, such as your UCC-specified power of attorney and indemnity and hold harmless agreement, your employer ID, etc. Then continue, I accept for value and return for value all the charging instruments in this matter and make my exemption available, not offer, since we can never make offers, for discharge of all obligations and charges connected with this case. I do not dispute any of the facts in the charging instruments. We must remember that problems are not solved on the level of problems. We cannot resolve the imaginary dispute in the imaginary domain. We must not try to pay with public funds. We must not try to prove ourselves innocent. And we must not plead not guilty, which is arguing, traversing, dishonoring, and telling them that you are joining the imaginary game and treating it as if it were real. All attempts to do these things are traversing and dishonoring, breaking the law and committing treason against the equity court by trying to deal with the dispute as if it were substantive, private, real, and in common law. The court then convicts us for contempt of court and imposes the common law sentence. We must also remember that they need us as the living principle to be a witness against ourselves, testify and make the legal determination for them that we are the one they are looking for in their let's pretend game and want to prosecute, convict, and punish. They need us to volunteer into contracting with them in their public domain. They cannot make the legal determinations that the defendant has anything to do with us. It is up to us to hang ourselves. The above statement satisfies all the essential criteria as follows. Number one, the catch-22 of the matter is that under common law, you're presumed innocent and still proven guilty, whereas in the Admiralty Equity Courts, you're presumed guilty until you prove yourself innocent, which is impossible in their less pretend presumption game. If you try to prove yourself innocent, you are in dishonor and are charged with a breach of trust to the beneficiary, the state. By so doing, you commit treason against the court by trying to secure a common law remedy where none is possible, and you do not neutralize the presumption and indeed ratify its force and effect while admitting that you have been a delinquent trustee and acted in violation of your fiduciary duty. Footnote 22. An interesting property of their equity courts is revealed by remembering the maxim of law that anything inside a box is not there. Consequently, the following persons slash players are not there. Number one, the jury, which sits in the jury box. Number two, the witness, who gives the testimony in the witness box. And number three, the judge who sits on a platform, which is also a box. Only the trustee, defendant, and beneficiary, state, are there and relevant to the proceedings. All the rest are part of the wizard's smoke and mirrors light show of diversion and misdirection. Two, you as a living principal on the substance private side are speaking on behalf of, but not as, your straw man defendant. Ideally, you have filed before ever going to court your court bond and notice of acceptance, standing, and status. Request for remedy, wherein you attach your acceptance and return for value documents and your standing status documents to define and clarify your standing as a living principal 
an authorized representative for your juristic person, Inslee just straw man. Number three, by proceeding in this manner, especially when supported by your notary witness documents, you neutralize the presumption that you are attached to and united with your straw man. Number four, do not traverse or dishonor, thereby disarming and diffusing the matter. Number five, you end the controversy by your acceptance and return for value, filing the bond and stating that you are not disputing the facts in the charging instruments. By not disputing the facts on the private side, you remove the dispute at its origin and leave nothing to resolve in the public arena. By making your exemption available to discharge the charges, you are in harmony with the law, leaving no violation to prosecute. Technically, you could say, as the living principle, I do not dispute the facts on the private, substance side, and my client pleads guilty to the charges on the public side. The point is that if you end the controversy on both the private and public sides, there is no dispute for a court to hear and entertain. There is no one and nothing to prosecute. Then, if they wish to convict your straw man of something, let them find the straw man guilty on their own, leaving them exposed. They're welcome to put on a piece of paper with the defendant's all caps on it on the electric chair, throw the switch, and discharge the charges through the paper or you're out having dinner with your girlfriend. Footnote 23. The authors have never heard of this being done, so can I vouch for the results that might accrue from doing so? Since this statement is accurate, explicit, and addresses both sides of the bar, it theoretically should be effective. Number 6. By not traversing into their game, and by not trying to defend yourself or your strawman against the charges, you do not enjoin the substantive private common law side with the civil or criminal charges, and thereby become a victim of sentencing as a result. The intent of using the above approach is to truncate the time, effort, and dialogue involved in dealing with giving one's name in court. If you are in this situation, and it looks as if it is not getting the job done and getting you the closure you desire, you can at any time go to the three-question approach discussed below. Placing evidence in court. In the meantime, if you are in a court proceeding, although no one and nothing operating from the public side, in other words, all attorneys and government officials, can place actual evidence on the record, you, as a real being, especially with a notorial witness, can. People and documents you can subpoena for deposition and evidence in your favor include the following. A. In both civil and criminal cases, subpoena persons for deposition or, or bringing in documents you require as evidence in the case. These parties can include the mayor of the municipality as well as the risk management accountant of the municipality with documentary proof that the insurance books on the case have been adjusted and a bona fide assessment has been made of the bond, the original complaint filed in the court. The voucher that must be issued by in the Department of Risk Management of the municipality in which the court is located is to monetize the complaint that created the funds by utilizing the derivative name, the all caps name of the defendant, supported by municipal bonds. Serving as subpoena ducis tecum, hereinafter and after SDT, whether or not you depose anyone for direct questions is appropriate in both state and federal cases. Obtain several official stamp subpoenas from the court in advance. In the section asking for documents subpoenaed, print, see attached schedule of documents subpoenaed set one. You can have your subpoena deuces tecum served by a process server, sheriff, or U.S. marshal and serve the prosecuting attorneys and perhaps also the mayor of the municipality in which the court is located 
and the head of the department or county department of the municipality department of risk management. The documents you should subpoena and require them to provide you with are as follows. A. Civil. 1. Basis upon which prosecution concerning your case number may continue after authorized representative has accepted and returned the charging instruments and case for value and posted the bond secured by and through authorized representative's exemption and therefore discharged the obligation and ended the controversy. Number two, certify a copy of the assessment in fact on which the charges in regards to case number are based. And number three, a certified true copy of the order from the Secretary of the Treasury to collect the debt obligation of the defendant for the case number. And number four, a certified audit trail of the voucher for monetizing the complaint slash bond on the case. B, criminal. All of the above items for civil plus, number one, the detainer authorized an incarceration of the defendant and the accompanying physical body of the name, your name, of the case number. Their failure to provide any of these items is a tort and grounds for habeas. As for the evidence you wish to establish on the record, first file what you want judicially noticed as evidence. This should include your court bond. As soon as your documents are filed, obtain at least two certified copies from the clerk of the court. Keep one set in a safe place. Take the other set with you to place into evidence in open court. Once you serve the evidence on the court, it cannot be denied. You give your documents to the bailiff who serves the judge, and even if the judge throws everything back at you, it does not matter. What you want to put into evidence has been served. The documents for you to file in the case and serve on the judge in open court should include the following. Number one, the judge's oath of office that you received from the Secretary of State or whatever official source provided it to you. Number two, your court bond that bonds the case. And number three, proof that you accepted the case and all charging instruments for value and returned them for value. Number four, your judgment and estoppel of the law, first certificate of non-response that the notary served on the opposing party. And number five, your judgment and estoppel of the facts, money, second notorial certificate of non-response. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.